Chapter 9 Marjorie, Marjorie, wake up! The order hath come. It is for tonight. Very slowly, Marjorie rose out of the glimmering depths of sleep into which she had fallen on the hot August afternoon, sunk down upon the arm of the great chair that stood by the parlor window, and saw Mrs. Thomas radiant before her, waving a scrap of paper in her hand. Nearly two months were passed, and as yet no opportunity had been given to the prisoner's wife to visit him, and during that time it had been impossible to go back into the hills and leave the girl alone. The heat of the summer had been stifling down here in the valley, a huge plague of grasshoppers had ravaged all England, and there were times when even in the grass country outside Derby their chirping had become intolerable. The heat and the necessary seclusion and the anxiety had told cruelly upon the country girl. Marjorie's face had perceptibly thinned, her eyes had shadows above and beneath, yet she knew she must not go, since the young wife had attached herself to her altogether, finding Alice, she said, too dull for her spirits. Mr. Bassett was gone again, there was no word of a trial, although there had been a hearing or two before the magistrates, and it was known that Topcliffe continually visited the prison. One piece of news only had there been to comfort her during this time, and that, that Mr. Johnson's prediction had been fulfilled with regard to the captured priest, Mr. Garlick, who, back from Rheims only a few months, had been deported from England, since it was his first offense. But he would soon be over again, no doubt, and next time with death as the stake in the game. Marjorie drew a long breath, and passed her hands over her forehead. The order? she said. What order? The girl explained torrentially. A man had come just now from the Guildhall. He had asked for Mrs. Fitzherbert. She had gone down into the hall to see him, and all the rest of the useless details. But the effect was that leave had been given at last to visit the prisoner, for two persons, of which Mrs. Fitzherbert must be one, and that they must present the order to the jailer before seven o'clock, when they would be admitted. She looked, such was the constitution of her mind, as happy as if it were an order for his release. Marjorie drove away the last shreds of sleep, and kissed her. That is very good news, she said. Now we will begin to do something. The sun had sank so far when they set out at last as to throw the whole of the square into golden shade, and in the narrow, overhung friar's gate, where the windows of the upper stories were so near that a man might shake hands with his friend on either side, the twilight had already begun. They had determined to walk, in order less to attract attention, in spite of the filth through which they knew they must pass, along the couple of hundred yards that separated them from the prison for every housewife emptied her slops out of doors and swept her house, when she did so at all, into the same place. Now and again the heaps would be pushed together and removed, but for the most part they lay there, bones and rags and rotten fruit, dusty in one spot so that all blew about, dampened in others where a pail or two had been poured forth. The heat too was stifling, cast out again towards evening from the roofs and walls that had drunk it in all day from the burning skies. As they stood before the door at last and waited, after beating a great iron knocker on the iron plate, a kind of despair came down on Marjorie. They had advanced just so far in two months as to be allowed to speak with the prisoner, and, from her talkings with Mr. Bedell, had understood how little that was. Indeed, he had hinted to her plainly enough that even in this it might be that they were no more than pawns in the enemy's hand, and that, under a show of mercy, it was often allowed for a prisoner's friends to have free access to him in order to shake his resolution. If there was any cause for congratulation, then, it lay solely in the thought that other means had so far failed. One thing at least they knew, for their comfort, that there had been no talk of torture. It was a full couple of minutes before the door opened to show them a thin, brown-faced man with his sleeves rolled up, dressed over his shirt and hose in a kind of leather apron. He nodded as he saw the ladies, with an air of respect, however, and stood aside to let them come in. Then, with the same civility, he asked for the order and read it, holding it up to the light that came through the little barred window over the door. It was an unspeakably dreary little entrance passage in which they stood, 
wainscoted solidly from floor to ceiling with wood that looked damp and black from age. The ceiling itself was indistinguishable in the twilight. The floor seemed composed of packed earth. Three or four doors showed in the woodwork. That opposite to the one by which they had entered stood slightly ajar, and a smoky light shone from beyond it. The air was heavy and hot and damp, and smelled of mildew. The man gave the order back when he had read it, made a little gesture that resembled a bow, and led the way straight forward. They found themselves, when they had passed through the half-open door, in another passage running at right angles to the entrance, with windows heavily barred so as to exclude all but the faintest twilight, even though the sun was not yet set. There appeared to be foliage of some kind, too, pressing against them from outside, as if a little central yard lay there. And the light, by which alone they could see their way along the uneven earthen floor, came from a flambeau which hung by the door, evidently put there just now by the man who had opened to them. He led them down this passage to the left, down a couple of steps, unlocked another door of enormous weight and thickness, and closed this behind them. They found themselves in complete darkness. "'I'll be with you in a moment, mistress,' said his voice, and they heard his steps go on into the dark and cease. Marjorie stood passive. She could feel the girl's hands clasp her arm, and could hear her breath come like sobs. But before she could speak, a light shone somewhere on the roof, and almost immediately the man came back carrying another flambeau. He called to them civilly. They followed. Marjorie once trod on some soft, damp thing that crackled beneath her foot. They groped round one more corner, waited while they heard a key turning in a lock. Then the man stood aside, and they went past into the room. A figure was standing there, but for the first moment they could see no more. Great shadows fled this way and that as the jailer hung up the flambeau. Then the door closed again behind them, and Elizabeth flung herself into her husband's arms. When Marjorie could see him, as at last he put his wife into the single chair that stood in the cell and gave her the stool, himself sitting upon the table, she was shocked by the change in his face. It was true that she had only the wavering light of the flambeau to see him by, for the single barred window was no more than a pale glimmer on the wall, yet even that shadowy illumination could not account for his paleness and his fallen face. He was dressed miserably too. His clothes were disordered and rusty-looking, and his features looked out, at once pinched and elongated. He blinked a little from time to time. His lips twitched beneath his ill-cut mustache and beard, and little spasms passed, as he talked, across his whole face. It was pitiful to see him, and yet more pitiful to hear him talk, for he assumed a kind of courtesy mixed with bitterness. Now and again he fell silent, glancing with a swift and furtive movement of his eyes from one to the other of his visitors and back again. He attempted to apologize for the miserableness of the surroundings in which he had received them, saying that her grace, his hostess, could not be everywhere at once, and that her guests must do the best that they could. And all this was mixed with sudden wails from his wife, sudden graspings of his hand by hers. It all seemed to the quiet girl, who sat ill at ease on the little three-legged stool, that this was not the way to meet adversity. Then she drove down her criticism, and told herself that she ought rather to admire one of Christ's confessors. "'Are you bringing me no hope, then, Mistress Manners?' he said presently, for she had told him that there was no talk yet of any formal trial. No hope that I may meet my accusers face to face. I had thought, perhaps— He lifted his eyes swiftly to hers, and dropped them again. She shook her head. And yet that is all I ask now, only to meet my accusers. They can prove nothing against me, except indeed my recusancy, and that they have known this long time back. They can prove nothing as to the harboring of any priests, not within the last year at any rate, for I have not done so. It seemed to me— he stopped again, and passed his shaking hand over his mouth, eyeing the two women with momentary glances, and then looking down once more. "'Yes?' said Marjorie. He slipped off from the table and began to move about restlessly. "'I have done nothing, nothing at all,' he said. "'Indeed, I thought—' And once more he was silent. He began to talk presently of the Derbyshire hills of Padley and of Norbury, 
He asked his wife of news from home, and she gave it him, interrupting herself with laments. Yet all the while his eyes strayed to Marjorie as if there was something he would ask of her, but could not. He seemed completely unnerved, and for the first time in her life the girl began to understand something of what jail life must signify. She had heard of death and the painful question, and she had perceived something of the heroism that was needed to meet them. Yet she had never before imagined what the life of confinement might be until she had watched this man, whom she had known in the world as a curt and almost masterful gentleman, careful of his dress, particular of the deference that was due to him, now become this worn prisoner, careless of his appearance, who stroked his mouth continually, once or twice gnawing his nails, who passed about in this abominable hole, where a tumbled heap of straw and blankets represented a bed, and a rickety table with a chair and a stool his sole furniture. It seemed as if a husk had been stripped from him, and a shrinking creature had come out of it which at present she could not recognize. Then he suddenly wheeled on her, and for the first time some kind of forcefulness appeared in his manner. "'And my Uncle Bassett?' he cried abruptly. "'What is he doing all this while?' Marjorie said that Mr. Bassett had been most active on his behalf with the lawyers, but, for the present, was gone back again to his estates. Mr. Thomas snorted impatiently. "'Yes, he has gone back again,' he cried. "'And he leaves me to rot here. He thinks that I can bear it forever, it seems.' "'Mr. Bassett has done his utmost, sir,' said Marjorie. "'He exposed himself here daily.' "'Yes, with twenty fellows to guard him, I suppose. I know my Uncle Bassett's ways. Tell me, if you please, how matters stand.' Marjorie explained again. There was nothing in the world to be done until the order came for his trial, or, rather, everything had been done already. His lawyers were to rely exactly on the defense that had been spoken of just now. It was to be shown that the prisoner had harbored no priests, and the witnesses had already been spoken with, men from Norbury and Padley, who would swear that to their certain knowledge no priest had been received by Mr. Fitzherbert at least during the previous year or eighteen months. There was, therefore, no kind of reason why Mr. Bassett or Mr. John Fitzherbert should remain any longer in Derby. Mr. John had been there, but had gone again, under advice from the lawyers, but he was in constant communication with Mr. Bedell, who had all the papers ready and the names of the witnesses, and had made more than one application already for the trial to come on. "'And why has neither my father nor my Uncle Bassett come to see me?' snapped the man. "'They have tried again and again, sir,' said Marjorie, "'but permission was refused. They will no doubt try again, now that Mrs. Fitzherbert has been admitted.' He paced up and down again for a few steps, without speaking. Then again he turned on her, and she could see his face working uncontrollably. "'And they will enjoy the estates, they think, while I rot here.' "'Oh, my Thomas,' moaned his wife, reaching out to him. "'While I rot here,' he cried again. "'But I will not. I tell you I will not.' "'Yes, sir?' said Marjorie gently, suddenly aware that her heart had begun to beat swiftly. He glanced at her, and his face changed a little. "'I will not,' he murmured. "'I must break out of my prison. Only there accursed—' Again he interrupted himself, biting sharply on his lip. For an instant the girl had thought that all her old distrust of him was justified, and that he contemplated in some way the making of terms that would be disgraceful to a Catholic. But what terms could these be? He was a Fitzherbert, there was no evading his own blood, and he was the victim chosen by the council to answer for the rest. Nothing then, except the denial of his faith, a formal and deliberate apostasy, could serve him. And to think that of the nephew of old Sir Thomas and the son of John was inconceivable. There seemed no way out. The torment of this prison must be borne. She only wished he could have borne it more manfully. It seemed, as she watched him, that some other train of thought had fastened upon him. His wife had begun again her lamentations, bewailing his cell and his clothes and his loss of liberty, asking him whether he were not ill, whether he had food enough to eat, and he hardly answered her or glanced at her, except once when he remembered to tell her that a good gift to the jailer would mean a little better food and perhaps more light for himself. And then he resumed his pacing, and, three or four times as he turned, the girl caught his eyes fixed on hers for one instant. 
she wondered what was in his mind to say. Even as she wondered, there came a single loud rap upon the door, and then she heard the key turning. He wheeled round and seemed to come to a determination. "'My dearest,' he said to his wife, "'here is the jailer come to turn you out again. I will ask him—' He broke off as the man stepped in. "'Mr. Jailer,' he said, "'my wife would speak alone with you a moment.' He nodded and winked at his wife, as if to tell her that this was the time to give him the money. "'Will you leave Mistress Manners here for a minute or two while my wife speaks with you in the passage?' Then Marjorie understood that she had been right. The man who held the keys nodded without speaking. "'Then, my dearest wife,' said Thomas, embracing her all of a sudden and simultaneously drawing her towards the door, "'we will leave you to speak with the man. He will come back for Mistress Manners directly.' "'Oh, my Thomas,' wailed the girl, clinging to him. "'There, there, my dearest, and you will come and see me again as soon as you can get the order.' The instant the door was closed, he came up to Marjorie, and his face looked ghastly. "'Mistress Manners,' he said. I dare not speak to my wife, but, but for Jesus' sake, get me out of here. I, I cannot bear it. Topcliffe comes to see me every day. He speaks to me continually of, oh, Christ, Christ, I cannot bear it. He dropped suddenly onto his knees by the table and hid his face. At Babington House, Marjorie slept, as was often the custom, in the same room with her maid, a large, low room hung all round with painted cloths above the low wainscoting. On the night after the visit to the prison, Janet noticed that her mistress was restless, and that while she would say nothing of what was troubling her, and only bade her go to bed and to sleep, she herself would not go to bed. At last, in sheer weariness, the maid slept. She awakened later, at what time she did not know, and, in her uneasiness, sat up and looked about her, and there, still before the crucifix, where she had seen her before she slept, kneeled her mistress. She cried out in a loud whisper, "'Come to bed, mistress, come to bed!' And at the word, Marjorie started, then she rose, turned, and in the twilight of the summer night began to prepare herself for bed without speaking. Far away across the roofs of Derby came the crowing of a cock to greet the dawn. <laughs>